Well, one of the reasons why I had that video for our uh, communion time is uh, obviously to, to share that redemptive story, but also to to really look at the story of redemption, because we've been talking about God's story for the last several weeks, and and uh, just this whole idea that uh, how God moves from from one side, from creation, and and in His whole plan at this point is is redemption, and but but the the I guess the the um, what I want to impress upon our minds today as we think about this subject is the fact that we are free to, to realize and to, to recognize the fact, the very fact that, that because of God's redemption, uh, you, you look at the, the slaves coming out of Egypt and can you imagine the, what that would have been like for them to finally, after 430 years of being oppressed, of being uh, worked and worked and worked and enslaved, that, that finally you have this this freedom that they have they are free and, and and that's really the story for us when we look at redemption is is this idea of being free if you remember we started in genesis chapters chapters one and two where uh looking at god's creation of the universe and uh how he made all of that really good and you know intending then for to have a perfect relationship with us and to live with us in the garden by genesis 3 we recognize that we've already messed it up we, we talk about the fall of humanity. We move then from there to Genesis 12, and we began to see how God uh, is going to redeem his community of faith. And we watch as he works through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and uh, he prepares to bring a people that will produce a redeemer. Uh, he builds his family, starting with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and the 12 sons, and, and moving on. And uh, that's really the story. It's the story, uh, it's creation, it's fall, it's redemption. But we pick that up with uh, the story of Joseph down in Egypt. If you remember the 12 sons, and Joseph goes to Egypt to get sold into slavery there. The older 12 sons didn't like him very much, and so they picked on him uh, because he was dad's favorite. And so they, they sold him into slavery, and... Um, that's where we pick up that story. There's 70, but Joseph's in Egypt, and several years later, his family, 70 people from the family, uh, uh, Abraham's family, uh, from uh, Jacob's family, really, uh, making their way to spend their time. Uh, they put them in the land of Goshen as God continues to work out his plan of redemption. Uh, we're going to look at the first few chapters of Exodus. We're going to pick up uh, just a verse or two. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start with verse number 8 uh, there. Uh, so if you want to open your Bibles to that, it, it will be up on the screen there if you want to look at that. But uh, I encourage you to, to be, to be uh, we'll have a number of things that we'll be looking at here this morning. But we're really going to tell the story of what happens as they come out of, out of Egypt. After Joseph has died, this is 430 years after uh, the, the, the uh, Israelites have been in, in Egypt, and again, we've talked about how the Egyptians, um, uh, what happened with the Egyptians. In fact, that's what we're going to be looking at right now. Uh, it says in, in, in Exodus, chapter, um, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says that a new king who did not know about Joseph, it says, uh, who came to power in Egypt, look at verse 9, it says, Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. 
And what we see here is a change of leadership in Egypt, what puts, which puts Israel into that position of slavery. In fact, for the next 430 years, as we talked about, they're going to be under the oppression of Pharaoh. They're locked up in the land of Goshen. That's where they live. And yet, they are slaves making bricks, helping to build the buildings in Egypt. The story is going to sound familiar because of, of, of these people. As these people begin to multiply and become so numerous, the Pharaoh says this. He says, we have to do something about this. We have to do something about it. And, and so what they do is they kill all the sons. That should really be a familiar story to, to us uh, because every time it seems that God is up to something that is good, God is going to be active, Someone, somebody comes along and tries to kill the boys. It's really a reflection of Revelation chapter 12 when God acts, God acts to bring forth his son. And Satan comes along and tries to kill the male child. That occurs in every story starting with Moses, moving to Samuel and on to Jesus where someone comes along and tries to take this lineage and destroy it. And then after this decree to destroy from Pharaoh to destroy every male child in Egypt, there is a son who is born. His name is Moses. And he, uh, in order to protect him, his mother puts him in a little basket, puts him in the Nile River where he can get into the bulrushes. And Pharaoh's daughter comes along, and, and I take that as, this as, as God's providence, if you will. She comes along, she finds this child, she wants the child to live. And so Miriam, Moses' sister, comes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, I see that you found a little baby. I can find an Egyptian woman to take care of your child for you. And so we know how it goes. She goes and gets Moses' mother, uh, and Moses is raised by his birth mother until he's old enough to go into the palace of Pharaoh, where he lives and he grows, where he's educated. In fact, he stays there in, in, in Pharaoh's passage, uh, his, his, uh, in his uh, palace, for approximately 40 years, learning all of the ways of Egypt. And yet he still knows about his history. He understands his Israeli background. And so he goes out one day to see his own people, and he discovers this Egyptian taskmaster who was beating up one of the slaves, one of his own people. And so Moses, what does he do? He goes and he kills this Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand, and he goes out the next day, he sees a couple of Israelites who were fighting together, and, and one of them, you know, and, and he, so he asks them why they're fighting, and, and their response to him is, what, are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? So Moses gets scared, he runs, he makes his way into the land of Midian, and it's there in Midian that he, he marries a woman by the name of Zipporah. And there he stays. In fact, he stays there for 40 more years. Now, during that time, the story turns, uh, it, it kind of takes a turn in it, in it. And we begin to hear that Israel is moaning, they're groaning in their slavery about the circumstances that they're in. And this is one of the things that we, look, that we read in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Take a look at that. It says, during that long period of time that the king of Egypt has died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery 
and they cried out in their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So, so 430 years, it, seem, it would seem, or it, it, it seemed like, uh, they were all years of silence, uh, and yet God, it, what we find out is that he's paying attention. He is listening. God is, is listening. He, he hears what Israel is doing. He sees the oppression, and he begins to act. In fact, as Moses is tending his sheep one day, he sees this burning bush, and it gets his attention. I think that would get all of our attention, wouldn't it? Um, and he engages God in this conversation. God says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to bring my people out of that, of their slavery. And in the midst of the the conversation, Moses has a question. Look at at chapter 3, verse 13. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your, foref- your, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. I am. Am. Moses doesn't know. Moses isn't sure who God is in this bush, right? And, and yet when he asks God for identification, God's simple statement is just tell them, I am. It's a verb. We, we know this. It's, it's, it's Engl- in, in English, it's Yahweh. It's, it's a word that the Israelites wouldn't even pronounce in the future, from, from this day forward. If they saw it, they wouldn't say it. They would substitute the word Lord. And so in our English text, every time the phrase Lord, every time we see that in all capital letters, it's this word for God, the personal name for God, Yahweh. When you go back to Egypt, you tell them, I am have sent you. Well, you know the story. There's really this, this, this bit of interaction between God and, and, and Moses. Uh, Moses so eloquently says to him, you know, I don't even know how to talk, right? And after a long conversation of, I don't know how to talk, well, you, you know, this between, back between him and God, after, you know, they just kind of discuss this, and God finally says, I'll send your brother, okay, fine, I'll send your brother Aaron with you, right? He'll talk for you. And if you read through the book of Exodus, uh, I just got done with it not too long ago, and, 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 and the interesting thing is, is what you discover is that Aaron doesn't say much. God says, God says, Moses, you know what? Okay, have it your way. If you don't know how to talk, I'll send your brother. He can talk. He's, he's a good talker. And yet you read the story, and, and Aaron doesn't really say much at all. Moses is the one who does most of the talking. What does that tell you? And yet in the midst of that, you get introduced to a concept, I think, that, that is so important that Moses begins to work with, and it's this idea of knowing 
God. He first gets introduced to him as I am. And then he goes and he confronts Pharaoh and he says, God says, I want you to let my people go. They need to go out into the wilderness. They need to, to, to have this opportunity to worship. Let them go. And in, and in Exodus chapter 5, you get introduced to this theme that then runs throughout the rest of this uh, story up to the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 5, verse number 2, Pharaoh's response to this request is this. Who's the Lord? Who is he that I should obey him? Who is he that I should let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. (laughs) Interesting. That theme, though, of knowing God is something that dominates the rest of this story. In fact, in Exodus chapter 6, when Moses is talking with Israel about, about leaving Egypt, this is what he says to the Israelites in chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you from an, with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That idea of knowing God dominates this. It occurs seven different times between here and the end of chapter 15. Uh, Every time that it comes, it it comes in this context. It comes in the context of, of this is happening so that you will know that I am the Lord your God. That's really the theme of the Exodus story. That's really the story of redemption. That you and I would come to the place that we would in fact know God. And not just understand who he is, but that we would live in a relationship with him and that we would in fact know him personally and he would know us. Well, as the story goes on, we, you have this confrontation that takes place. Moses confronts Pharaoh and, and, and we have the ten plagues. And, and we, I, I think what we need to really understand when we think about the ten plagues is really what's at stake here. Because it's really a matter of sovereignty. It's a matter of sovereignty. This is a which God rules. This is Israel's God, I am, versus the gods of the Egyptians. Every one of those plagues represents one of the gods of the, uh, of the Egyptians. And it's really a direct confrontation There are ten plagues, every one of them representing one of the gods of Egypt. So here they are in the order. I've got to write them down usually because I can't remember them, but you'll see them up on the screen here. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, dying livestock, uh, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and then the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Ten plagues. Every one of them a direct assault on an Egyptian god. Now, 
if you've watched any of the movies, uh, there's, there's a cartoon one that they have, and they show their magicians tried to do some of the, the same plagues. And on two of the occasions, I think turning into blood was the first one, and then the frogs, their magicians were able to repeat that. But the next eight, not even come close. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. But in this con- contest of, of, of sovereignty, there's one thing that becomes very clear, and that is which God is really God. It's the God of Israel. And in this dialogue, you let my people go, Pharaoh keeps on saying, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And every time there's this refusal, there's another plague. And every time there's another plague comes, there's this comment, I'm... I'm going to do this so that you will know that I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord, and I am going to take you out of Egypt. Well, just before the 10th plague, God says to Israel, he says, I want you to get ready. I want you to, to, to consecrate yourself. I want you to just prepare uh, this big meal for, for, uh, that you're going to have together, and I want you to find this perfect lamb. I want you to kill that, that lamb. I want you to roast it. I, no unleavened bread. You're going to eat it at night. I want you to eat it so you're dressed and I want you to be ready. Eat it standing up because I am ready now to act. We call this whole part here Passover. That term Passover, some of us have heard this Passover, it really comes from uh, because on that particular night there's this death angel that passes over Egypt and destroys the firstborn of every living thing. So God says, I want you to take that, 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 the, the blood of that perfect lamb. By the way, this imagery also shows up in the New Testament. We know that, right? Take this blood of the perfect lamb, cover the doorposts of your homes, so that when death passes over, it knows not to stop here. And death came that night. All the firstborn in Egypt died. None of the firstborn of Israel died who painted the doorposts of their home with blood. And that meal, by the way, is observed throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Every year, Israel celebrated the feast. Seven days of not eating leavened bread, then a big meal where they're gathered together to remember the Exodus. And we still do that. We come to a table set with unleavened bread. We come to a table that has grape juice or wine in memory of the Lord's Supper so that we never forget the redemptive act of God. So that night, Israel ready to leave, and Egypt ready to finally let them leave, collects all the booty that they want. That's what it says. God made them favorably disposed. He says, just ask the uh, Egyptians, and they'll give you whatever you need. They have silver, they have gold, they have have all this precious cloth, they have all this stuff that later was to be used in in building of the tabernacle. And and they began to leave. And we saw you know, that, that picture of that. They made their way through this desert and on their way to freedom when suddenly they run into a major problem. Right? The Red Sea. They stopped. 
and they groan and they moan and it, it, it gets worse. They talk, I mean, you talk about being between the proverbial rock and a hard place, right? In, in front of them is this red sea and, and they turn around and they see the dust rising because here comes Pharaoh who, who has changed his mind and, and he's coming to get them and, and God speaks to Moses and he says, don't let that trouble you. You just trust me. You just keep moving this pillar of cloud and that and fire that led Israel during this journey from, uh, from Egypt over to the Red Sea now is I'm going to take that and I'm going to move that. Uh, it's been in front of Israel leading you, but now I'm going to move that behind Israel to protect you. It's going to block the path of the Egyptians. So Moses turns. You saw it on the picture, right? Uh, or on the, on the, on the video. Moses turns, he takes his rod, the rod that he has used to turn into a snake, the rod that he ha- ha- has been his statement of leadership, he places it on the Red Sea, and the water parts in Israel walks across on dry ground. It took about three minutes for you to watch that. But you know, I... You think about that, though. I mean, it, 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 to me, it's just so hard to get a handle on what actually happened that day. Because it, it wasn't a three-minute story that, that you can read. I mean, our, our videos, our movies, uh, Charlton Heston has really done, I mean, tried, you know, that film, The Ten Commandments, really tried to give us a, a, a help us to grasp with or grapple with that, that whole idea of what that must have been like. A million people moving across on dry land. You think about that. And then when they, the, the enemy started to come, God allowed those waters to come down on the Egyptians. And they were free. The Israelites were free. That is rede- that, that is, that's, that's redemption's story. That, that, that as the people of God, that, that we have been redeemed from our slavery, right? We have been set free. And, and, and that story begins to run through the rest of the Old Testament. You see it absolutely everywhere that you turn. It's the story of redemption. It's, it's first celebrated in Exodus chapter 15 when we see there the song of Miriam. It's this elaborate relaying of how the mighty hand of God came across uh, uh, and, and, and saved Israel. And, it, and it's really the only legitimate response to the activity of God. The only real response, response that you, you can make, that I can make, to, to God's mighty arm is just to rejoice in worship. And that's what Israel does. And that song then carries its way throughout the rest of his, Israel's history. Joshua chapter 24, when they finally are ready to... To, to, to lead into the promised land, they, they, they ring, re-sing this song. They tell the story. It, it, it shows up, this story shows up in the Psalms, almost the whole story. Psalm 105, Psalm 136. Uh, I, I, um, I, there's a major chunk of it that we see in Isaiah chapter 43. We see it in Isaiah chapter 51. We see it in Isaiah 63. The story being told, the story being remembered that God has done something incredible. And that carries over into the New Testament when we have in the book of Acts, we have Stephen. He's making this speech in the, in the book of Acts. 
in, in Acts chapter 8, the bulk of the speech is the rehearsal of that redemptive story of God taking his people out of Egypt. We see it there. Um, it shows up in Hebrews chapter, chapter 11. We have there the, the hall of the faithful. We're reminded of these, these acts of faith when they trusted God to lead them out of G- Egypt. That, that phrase, out of Egypt, becomes the dominant image of God's redemptive story. In fact, if you read the Ten Commandments, the very opening verse in Exodus chapter 20 is this. It's not about the law, but this. Remember, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of what? Egypt. And that redemptive, graceful act of God underlines everything that happens. You read through the book of Leviticus, this book of the law, and it will say, I want you to do this because I am the Lord your God, and I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, it's just all over the place. That's the story. God's leading us to redemption. And the rest of the story is really very simple. It really is, right? They cross over to the other side. Now they've got, the, they've got to have something to drink. So they ought to have something to eat. And so Moses takes his staff and he strikes a rock and out comes water. And they're, they're, they're hungry. So every day they get up in the morning, they come out, and, 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 and on the ground is manna. Uh, it's, it's there. And they, and they ate. Uh, when they got tired of having manna, when they got uh, tired of eating that three days, uh, three three meals a day, God sent quail to to them, and and they wandered in the wilderness. Well, they wandered there because of. Um, I was telling our kids this morning, you know, they they would have been into the promised land a lot quicker, right? They they went right up. They sent in the twelve spies. I told you the story a little bit earlier uh, um, at the beginning of our service. They went in there because they got such a bad report. God says, okay. That's fine. Uh, instead of going in in, uh, in about a couple of months uh, after wandering around the wilderness, now the rest of you, those of you who came out of Egypt, all of you who are 20 years of age and older, you're going to stay here. You're going to die here. It's only your kids that are going to be able to go. So they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. Because of their disobedience. And God took care of them every single day. When they got tired of having, uh, or, um, uh, that, but, but that's really the story. That's, it's, it's really the story of, of redemption. It's really the story of, you know, you got redemption. You have, it, it's creation, fall, redemption. But this, this story really should sound familiar because this story is lived out in, other, in, in the other story that we're familiar with. And in, in fact, it, it is most clearly lived out in the Gospel of Matthew. I want you to notice this. If you want to look at the book of Matthew here, Matthew is written to, a, to who? Somebody tell me. Jews. The Jews. Jewish nation. Matthew writes to the Jewish nation. Virtually, he retells the whole Exodus story as if you were reading Exodus chapter 1 through 15. Did you know that? It starts with this very unusual birth, not unlike the unusual birth of Moses, Right? And then in Matthew chapter 2, God says to Mary and Joseph, take your son to go and, and go to Egypt where you will be protected until the king dies. Sound familiar? 
as the king died in the Exodus, and after the death of the king, God says, bring my son back. Uh, Hosea, the, uh, the prophet Hosea says about that event, when, uh, Here's what he says uh, when, he's, when he says this. He says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Right? That's what he says about that. Out of, uh, so Jesus comes up out of Egypt even as Israel came up out of Egypt. Do you see the parallel? But where does he end up? Somebody? He ends up in the water. Right? Comes to the Jordan River with John the Baptist, just as Israel crossed the Red Sea. Jesus crosses through the waters of his baptism at the, at the hands of John the Baptist. And on the other side of that experience, do you remember where he ends up to that? In a desert, right? Matthew chapter 4, for 40 days, he ends up in the wilderness. Remember how long, that, how, how long was the, the Israelites in the, in the wilderness? 40 years. And in that time, God gives Israel the law. And at the end of that time, Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where he compares his understanding of God with that Old Testament law. Matthew, this is what I want you to catch, is that Matthew virtually, virtually parallels Exodus chapter 1 through 15 as God calls his son up out of Egypt and produces once more the redemptive act to free his people. But the comparison doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop in Matthew because it gets moved into your life and, and into my life. It, it's, it's, it's so fascinating, the, the thing that happens over in 1 Corinthians 10, because the very act of Exodus is compared to, our, to your personal experience, to my personal experience with God. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, as Paul is writing to this Corinthian church, look at what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Look at what he says here. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, they were all baptized in the, in, into Moses in, in, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the spirit, same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Their experience parallels our experience in that they had to pass through the water just as we pass through the baptismal waters whereby we are identified with Christ. Their experience was to place their trust in Moses' leadership and to allow him to lead them into the future. And the rock, it says, that rock from which the water, uh, from, which the water from the nourishment came was Christ. Our, our identity with Christ no longer enslaved in our own personal Egypt, is the story of redemption. So what does that all mean? Well, I think it means at least this. This story is an eternal story, and that story needs to be told and retold from generation to generation. That's what it means. 
In the account that occurs in, in the book of De Deuteronomy, it's also found a, 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 um, it's found a couple different times in Deuteronomy, first in chapter 6, but you have this account of the, of the crossing of the Red Sea, and just after the giving of the law here in chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's this statement that occurs in the mouth of Moses. Here's what he says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. And that is our responsibility. To take the story of redemption from one generation to the next, and that generation then takes it to another. This story, this redemptive story, reminds me that God never abandons his people. 430 years of, of silence, and yet God is not absent. He's there. He's, he's hearing. He's working. He's ready to act. I know that there's times, sometimes, you know, we, 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 it, it sort of feels like God might be absent, and yet we can rest assured that God has not left. He is there. He is listening. He is watching, and he is aware, and he is ready to act. Amen? Amen. This story teaches us that God is not only able but God is willing to save. I mean, here's Israel. Here is his people caught between that proverbial rock and a hard place. And it's so clear that without God's help, they're not going to survive. They're not going to survive. In fact, it, it, it only... It not only teaches us that, uh, of God's willingness to save, to, you know, to redeem, it teaches us that there is no way that you and I can do it on our own. You stand at the edge of the Red Sea, and you look behind you, and you see uh, that you have this Egyptian army bearing down on you, and you recognize this one truth very clearly. I cannot do this on my own. This story... This story reminds me that all of redemption is in God's hands, not mine. It's not about us. This is really about him. It's about what he has done. But once you've been redeemed, once you have listened, once you have heard, once you have responded, you take up the mantle of responsibility. If you still have 1 Corinthians 10 open... Uh, take a look at verse number 5. That, the verse that follows this repetition of Israel's history, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5, it says this, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. In a little one-chapter book, the book of Jude, in writing about the redemptive story, Jude says this in Jude 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. 
We become responsible for our story. While, while redemption is free, while redemption is the act of God as a statement of grace, once I have been redeemed, it becomes my responsibility to be faithful, to live that story out and to share that story with the next generation. Once I come to know God, my job is to live like I know God, as if he walks with me through this desert, the desert of my life. That's really the story. It's, the, it's really the redemptive story of God, that God is, is, in, is in Christ, and he's pulling the world to himself. And that's the story. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this story of redemption. And we love you. And we thank you for all that, that you have gone through in order to bring that to us and the sacrifice that you've made. Uh, thank you for just pointing out to us all of the, all of the, um, the similarities, how that story just gets brought forth into the New Testament and into our lives. And Father, I just pray for each of us here that, that we will, will uh, not only recognize that, but, but also live uh, faithfully to you and, and um, live as redeemed people in our everyday lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.